Having babies, it's a part of so many people's life plans. But when it comes to starting a family, there's so many decisions to be made, one of which is when. For those who want kids, when is the ideal time to start trying? When is that magical age when we've achieved all the things we want to achieve but are still on track with the so-called biological clock? Our knowledge of fertility, that is our ability to reproduce and of age-related fertility decline, has a real impact on our aspirations and plans for family. But how much do we really know? And what could be skewing our knowledge? It's Fertility Matters, and it matters for women and men. It's episode 24 of Sister Doctor Squared, two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. Squares, Alina here, and thanks for joining us for this very special episode of Sister Doctor Squared. We'll tell you why it's special in a bit, but first, as always, we are recording from Mianjin country in Brisbane, and we acknowledge the Tarabal and Yagra people as the traditional owners of the land. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to us now. Janine, sister, come in. How are you? I am good. I am really excited about this episode, but before we share why, we are extremely excited to share that we have hit 3,000 downloads. Yeah, Yeah! Thank you, Squares. Milestone! There's a lot of squares out there, and we, we keep finding more. There's a lot of squares. Mm. And, Alina, I would like to raise that we have noticed something very interesting when we look at the stats in our podcast platform. We have... A very large following from Mexico. Yes. And we don't really understand how this has happened. So we wanted to say hello. Should I I say hola? Hola, Mexico. (laughs) We have almost the same number of listeners from Mexico as all of the United States. So we just (laughs) really would love to hear from any of you. How did you find us? Who are you? How did you find us? Why do you like us? What's going on? We love having you. Please let us know. Please jump on the socials or you don't even have to do that. You just go on our website. Yeah. Go to the Connect page and send us a little message. Yeah. Because we just really want to know. Really know. Who are you? Yeah. Because it's done. And this has been going for a while. This has been going for a good few months. I love it. Maybe even six months. Yes. So, so for some reason, something started and it's building. <laughs> we want to know why. I love it. I love it too. Thank you so much. Now, there's squares everywhere. There are. And on that note... The last episode we did on Space Junk is now the most downloaded in the first week and month. Yes. That episode was fun. That was a cracker. I particularly liked that bit of email banter, Janine, that you shared with some of the researchers yes. whose work we covered. Yes. I'm talking about you, Rudvik Navalgand. He had some very kind words after the episode and Rudvik also wanted to let us know that he enjoyed the theme music for the new What Can We Learn from David Bowie segment, which we premiered Mm -hmm. last episode thanks to composer Adrian Diary. Mm -hmm. And Rudvik let us know that he preferred the Squares and Rockers theme tune (laughs) to the alternate fame-inspired science tune. So much banter from so many people about the new segment. Very pleased with that. I just love, yeah, I love that he shared that. I do. That's great. And we agree. And as you always say, Janine, what are we doing? We're building a community here. Yeah, we are. We're building a community of David Bowie and music and science-loving super nerds. (laughs) Welcome to all of you. (laughs) And do stick around because we've got another instalment of What Can We Learn from David Bowie coming up later this episode. And on that, from the people I've heard from, it's about an even split in terms of preferences for the different theme music options. Just want to put that out there. Oh, really? Pretty split down the middle, yeah. That's because they're both great. I love both. I can't decide. That's right. All right, Janine, tell us what we're talking about this episode. Yes. All right, so this is a very special episode. And the reason it is special is that we are finally covering some of Alina's research. Yay! Yay! You may remember Alina took us through some of my research into the behaviour of satin bowbirds in episode seven quite a while ago. And now the shoe's on the other foot. I've been pestering Alina about doing this for quite some time 
And she really has. <laughs> and so as we did in the last episode around our own research, in this episode I will be covering Alina's paper. Let's do mm. it. Yeah, and I will be picking up on any um, mistakes or misinterpretations you have. <laughs> there has been a little bit of back and forth, just full disclosure <laughs> to make sure I'm understanding. It's very good paper, Alina. I'm not just oh, saying that. Thanks. It is. This paper is by Dr. Alina Wojcieszek <laughs> and Dr. Rachel Thompson. It was published in 2013. It is called Conceiving of Change, A Brief Intervention Increases Young Adults' Knowledge of Fertility and the Effectiveness of In Vitro Fertilization. May I please just highlight the excellent pun work there, Conceiving <laughs> yes. of Change? Yes. Well, look, we have to just shout out to Rachel Thompson, who, by the way, is probably up there, which is one of my favourite all-time people. Yeah. Rachel is... She's pretty rad. She's just our kind of person. Yeah. She's smart and kind and also funny. Yeah. And super fun to work with. Yeah. And so I had the great pleasure of working with Rachel on this study, which was my honours research. So this yes. was my first real research study that I ever did. Yes. And we did that together. And, yes, Rachel was responsible for the puns. I don't know if she still does this, but <laughs> for a while Rachel insisted on having puns <laughs> in every title um, in every paper that she published. Do you have a specific meeting to brainstorm these? Oh, probably, yeah, there would have been a few. Um, and she's very good at doing them. We actually had a few. There was another study we did together. We looked at what kind of information women wanted to be able to decide at what health facility they wanted to have their baby. Yep, I remember and that. And we called that one Delivering Information, <laughs> a descriptive study of Australian women's information needs for decision-making about birth facility. And delivery of their baby. <laughs> it's right. And... My thesis as well, there's a pun in the title of my thesis. It was missed conceptions. <laughs> was in the title. So there was a few. Oh, it's still good. Um, that, that's all, Rachel. I'm not good at coming up with puns and I have not carried through the tradition oh, of my more recent work, I'm afraid. Such a shame. I've never right. done it, but I, I have some colleagues that do it. I enjoy it very much. It is engaging. It is. Um, and I should mention this is was in the journal Fertility and Sterility. Oh, yes. Oh, look, I don't want to keep interrupting you, but I also just want to say that. <laughs> That's fine. Go ahead. That that journal name has one of my favourite abbreviations because I don't, if in case Square's unaware, some of you will be, but journal names often have a journal abbreviation. So if it's, I don't know, something like the, the International Journal of... Uh, competitive duck herding. I just made that up. That's not a journal. But if that was a journal, its abbreviation would be something like int j comp duck herd, right? Yeah. And so fertility and sterility, I just really love it because its abbreviation is fertil steril. <laughs> <laughs> I just always really enjoyed that. I, I like that. Oh, it's good. Carry on, Janine. Right. No, look, you you interrupt as much as you like. You are literally the expert to. on this. I'm topic. excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I also want to point out it's open access. I don't know if it was when you published it, but anyone can go and get this. So that's great. Go nuts, everyone. Go and have a look at this awesome paper. And it is a really good paper. I, I, I'm genuinely not saying that. It was very easy for me to read through and gather my thoughts. So well done to you, Alina, especially as it being your very first paper as first author. So let's get into it. So it opens with Alina and Rachel explaining that as at 2013, there was an increasing tendency for young adults to want to have children at older ages than was the norm in previous generations. And that trend has generally continued, right? Mm, for sure. However, knowledge around how age impacts on fertility is lacking, especially among young people. When asked mm. to predict how likely, I like how you're going, oh, as if you didn't know. <laughs> no, I'm agreeing. Keep doing it. Um, when asked to predict how likely they will be to conceive a child at different ages, young adults tend to overestimate things. Now, I can't ask Alina these questions that are coming because she literally did the study. But so what I'm going to do is turn it over to the listeners. So I'm going to ask some questions. I want you to make some predictions. And then I'm going to reveal what the research tells us. And the data I use are according to what had been published in this space at the time and what, what is referenced within Alina and Rachel's paper. But I did have a look around and there doesn't seem to have been any major shifts in any of these stats. So there's, they're still seeming to hold up. All right. Are you ready, listeners? Question one. On average, at what age do you think women's fertility first starts to decline? 
can we, I don't know, thinking can you be bothered music, um, music, yeah, da, putting da, da, in some music? Da, 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 All right. Yep. The answer is, on average, it begins to decline at age 27. Mm. Now, I remember when you were doing this research, Alina, and I was coming up to that age and I was genuinely really surprised. I did not think it was that young that it started to decline. No. Next question. At what age, on average, do you think there is a marked decline in women's fertility? Thinking music. Can you maybe think about putting some actual music in if you can be bothered? I'll see if I have time. Whatever, I don't care. I might like this. This might sound good. Okay. All right, so the, the answer for that is an average age of 35. And again, I remember being really surprised by that. Yeah. Well, this was the point of the paper That's is right. that the, the knowledge among people in general is is not so great mm. and in young people in particular even. Yeah. And, you know, you think about, well, why, I remember thinking, why did I think, I would have thought it would be like mid to late 40s is when I would have said Mark decline. Well, yes. And why is that, Janine? Why do you think that might be the case? Well, I think... I was certainly not in a massive rush to have children young, so you're kind of going, oh, I'll do it later and it'll be fine because you can think of examples in the media, celebrities that are doing it later, so you just cling to that thinking, oh, look, it's all good. Yeah, Mm. that's right. The the media does contribute to misinformation and bias around this topic. Mm. All right, we've got one more question. This one is, at what age do you think men's fertility begins to decline? Thinking music. Yep. Now we've got the boys listening. (laughs) Again, I was so surprised by this. Mm. On average, age 35. Yes. So it starts to decline on average at that age. That's right. Yeah. So in our show notes, we'll put up links to where these stats are coming from if anyone's interested in having a look at that. Uh, It's really important to point out that not only are you not only do we find fertility declining as we age, there is also an increased risk of pregnancy complications, increased risk of miscarriage and increased risk of stillbirth and other health issues for the baby. So it's very significant. It's true. Not only do many young adults not realise the reality of when fertility begins to decline, there is also a growing use for assisted reproductive technologies such as IVF. And while these technologies are amazing, they may lead to a false sense of security in young people. That is, many may think they are going to be fine conceiving at later ages, and if not, IVF will be a straightforward and effective fix if required. Yeah. Previous studies have shown that 60% of men and women in relationships believe IVF would be successful for them if required. One study showed that 90% of women surveyed who did not yet have children believed IVF would work for them if needed. So that's what people think, but what does the data actually say? Well, in 2010, there were 61,774 assisted reproductive technology treatment cycles undertaken in Australia and New Zealand, and of these cycles, only 18% resulted in the birth of a live baby. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's just these assumptions that we have that Mm. are based on misinformation and you know, inaccurate portrayals that we see in media Mm. and in other sources. Mm. And certainly one of the things at the time that we were concerned about was when IVF clinics are reporting their success rates, they may report them in terms of clinical pregnancies. And what that means is is a pregnancy that lasts 20 weeks. Really? Um, Even an ectopic pregnancy may be considered a clinical pregnancy. Really? So they're not necessarily reporting success rates in terms of the birth of a live Mm, baby, mm -hmm. which is, of course, what people are seeking when they go through these technologies and these treatments. Yeah. And IVF is also crazy expensive, if anybody out there doesn't know. It's very expensive. It's also uh, invasive. It can be painful for women Mm. and uh, extremely stressful. Mm -mm. And again, they're amazing technologies that they have given many families, the families that they want, but we need more information about what is involved and what it's going to cost in terms of time, uh, well-being, money. Yes, that's right. So what this is telling us is that many people may be making uninformed decisions around their family planning, and this may lead many to be unable to achieve their family aspirations, which may then obviously impact on their general mental health and overall well-being. So Alina and Rachel were keen to test whether a specific intervention could improve understanding of how age impacts on fertility 
and the effectiveness of IVF. They also wanted to explore what effect such knowledge might have on the age at which people desire to have their own children. The early 20s is an excellent time to run such an intervention. And when this study was done, there had been no formal interventions published in this space yet. Yes, we were the first. You were. All right, so... 137 university students were recruited to the study. They had an average age of 19, which is the perfect age range for this kind of intervention. Both women and men were recruited and only those without children were included. This was a two-group pre-test, post-test design. What this essentially means is it's a before and after study. Participants were allocated to either a control or an intervention group This was done via an alternate allocation process. Technically, it's not an RCT, but for all intents and purposes, it was. Yeah, so it's not a randomised controlled trial because when you do a randomised controlled trial, when you allocate people to the interventional control group, that's done randomly. And it's just because the survey design software we use could not do that. Mm. It could only do alternate allocation. So... What we did was to have the participants take the link and go and complete the study in their own time. Um, And by doing that, there was no way that we could, you know, know or influence which group they would be assigned to. So essentially, I would say for all intents and purposes, yeah, it's it's random. That's right. Okay, so all participants did a pre-test survey and this was done online and they were asked, would you like to have children in the future? If they answered yes, they were asked how many children they would like to have and they were asked how personally important it was for them to have children and this was on a scale of 1 to 10. And finally asked at what age they would like to have their first and their last child. And for this, they could select, I don't know. Participants were asked about their awareness of fertility and infertility. An example of these questions was, at what age do you think women experience a slight decline in fertility? And they could then select an age, select never or select I don't know. They were then asked that question again, but instead of being asked about a slight decline in fertility, they were asked at what age do you think women experience a marked decrease in fertility? And similarly asked at what age do you think men experience a slight decline in fertility. In terms of IVF effectiveness, participants were asked for a couple having IVF when a woman is 35 years of age, the average chance of having a baby as a result is something percent. So there they were asked to select a percentage or to select I don't know. And then they were asked that question again and then instead of it being the woman being 35, they were asked around age 40 and also age 45. Participants in the intervention group were given an online brochure which included information about things like the age of fertility decline in women and men and the success rates for IVF for women at ages 35, 40 and 45. The control group, on the other hand, were given an aesthetically identical control brochure and this one was about home ownership. So it (laughs) included information like the difficulty around buying a house, the average amounts owing on home loans at different time points. After reading the brochure, all participants were then asked to complete the same online survey and ask those same questions around fertility, IVF, etc. So let's first just look at what, what the participants were saying before they'd been given the information brochure. So all participants were asked, would you like to have children in the future? 86% said yes, and there was no difference between the intervention and control group. Of those that said yes, the majority wanted one or two children and the importance of having children was ranked as high and it was a mean of 7.7 out of that scale of 10. So let's look at the knowledge of fertility decline with age. Alina and Rachel found that this was significantly better for the intervention group after they had read the brochure. So I want to point out that before reading the brochure, the intervention group scored 0.64 out of 5 on average. So very poor knowledge prior. But after the brochure, it increased to 4.18 out of 5. So, Alina, what an excellent brochure it must have been. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (sighs) Importantly, there was no change in the control group. So there was no, they they didn't do any better. And it makes sense because they read about home ownership. So we wouldn't expect them to suddenly know more. 
That's right. <laughs> and the mean for the control group stayed at less than one out of five. So similarly mm. bad. I just want to ask, Alina, how random do you think this experience was for those in the control group? <laughs> I was just going to say that. I think we need to discuss this. Well, that's right. And I think that I do remember because at the end of the survey, the participants could um, type some comments and let us know if they had any thoughts about the study and what they had learned. Oh. And I remember at least one or two expressing some confusion <laughs> about course. You know, I'm not sure why I was asked these questions about fertility after reading, you know, this brochure about home ownership. Mm. But so what happens with with studies like this is at the end, the participants are given a debriefing information. So they were given, we explained to them exactly what the study was about, Mm -hmm. what had happened, that they had been assigned to one of these groups Mm -hmm. and that we were, you know, what we were interested in was this. And those participants who had been assigned to the control group, we did give them the option to receive the fertility brochure if they were interested to learn about that. Oh, yeah, good. All right, so let's look at IVF effectiveness. Again, the knowledge of this improved significantly after reading the brochure for those in the intervention group, and there was no change in the control group. So for the intervention group prior, they only scored 0.36 out of four. Again, very poor. And after, on the other hand, 2.79 out of four. So a big jump there, which is great. For the intervention group, they reported that they wanted to have children at a younger age than before reading the brochure. This was the age at which they want to have their first child. And this was significant as well. Also no change in the control group. And when asked about the age that they would like to have their last child, they wanted to have the last child younger than before they had read the brochure. And again, no change in the control group. So pretty cool and clear results. We can see that providing accurate information to young adults does improve their awareness of age-related fertility decline and the true effectiveness of IVF. And we also see that this information did lead to reassessment of when they would like to start and stop having children. It is interesting because we did not set out to influence people's reproductive aspirations in any particular direction. Mm. That was just exploratory, you know. We were curious. Mm. We wanted to know if we are able to increase knowledge, mm. what effect does that have mm. on when people want to have children? Mm. So it was really interesting to see that. Totally. So I do need to raise the limitations, Lena. Of course, yep. The main one being that you didn't follow the group to see if the knowledge persisted over time. Yeah, that's right. We tested their knowledge immediately after the intervention. <laughs> yes. And therefore... You weren't able to also look at whether this knowledge persisted and impacted on their decisions long term. Yeah, that's right. And asking people when they would like to have their first and last child is very different to actually assessing behaviour. When yeah. when does that actually happen? That's right. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, I think because they had rated um, being fertile and having children as highly important, mm-hmm. we think that there's at least some motivation there to retain this sort of information? Mm-hmm. Well, I remember when I learned of this through you, I still remember those numbers. When I went back to read the paper, I already remembered it was 27 slight decline, 35 marked decline, because it was really relevant to me. Those numbers stuck in my brain. That's right. And I think, you know, even if you don't remember the exact ages, I think mm. the the main message is that women's fertility starts to decline earlier than you probably think. That's right. And that men's fertility also does decline with age Mm. because people think that it doesn't. Yeah, that's right. Of course, the decision around whether and when to have children is a very big and complicated one. Knowledge around fertility is just one thing factoring into these decisions. Society and systemic issues can often mean that many individuals may not be able to conceive at the point of their choosing. Yeah, that's right. And in, in this space... We talk about the preconditions people have of having children. So it's things like, you know, they might want to go through higher education, Mm. they might want to establish themselves at work first, be financially secure, um, find a stable partner. They might want to be married first. They might want to own a home. (laughs) These are all the things that ideally people like to do before having children. And doing all of that at the time when physiologically it's best to reproduce, Mm. that's really Mm -hmm. difficult. For most people. Yeah. Well, that's certainly the dominant cultural narrative, isn't it? That that's the way you should be doing these things. That's right. And it's also really important because 
people who go through higher education are especially mm. likely to delay mm. having children. So I think doing this study in this population of uni students was relevant, mm. I guess, twofold because of their age and also because of the fact that they're going through higher education. Mm, that's right. So I really enjoyed reading this paper. <laughs> well done to the authors. Oh, thanks, sis. <laughs> Um, Thanks, Rachel. I only have one more question, and that is, mm. can you tell us what you learned about home ownership? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you're ready to answer that one, but that's my only question. I actually learned a fair bit. I learned a fair bit, and I have to say, I probably put as much, I had to put as much effort into the control home ownership brochure mm. as I did the fertility one mm. because, you know, it still had to be an educational brochure. It still had to have genuine facts and convey an important message. And, I, you know, essentially it's always been very difficult to own a home in Australia. Mm. Um, nothing's changed there. I'd say it's, it's much worse now, but it's always been very difficult. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad we finally got to do some of your research. Did I do your paper justice? You did a great job, yes. Janine. Well done. <laughs> I, this so is more nerve-wracking than normal. <laughs> Well, as I said in episode seven, it's not often that we have the author of the paper on the podcast <laughs> ready to answer questions. <laughs> okay, my turn. So the the study of mine and Rachel's that Janine just told us about was done quite a while ago now. And Janine and I wanted to cover some newer research in the fertility knowledge space. What's been happening in recent times? What else is going on that's potentially influencing our decisions about when to have babies? Well, one of those things is the so-called egg timer test, also known as the ovarian reserve test. Mm -hmm. Scientifically, this is the anti-malarian hormone or AMH test. Uh, now, anti-malarian hormone is produced by the ovaries, and as women age, the level of this hormone decreases. So the AMH test is a blood test that gives an indication of how many remaining eggs a woman has in her ovaries. But there are some pretty significant caveats around that, which is important because Right now, this test is being marketed to everyday women mm. as a test that can tell them how fertile they are, essentially, and that they can use this test to help them decide when is the best time physiologically to try to get pregnant. The problem is the AMH test is actually not that great at predicting a woman's chance of conceiving. Not that great at all, because while it might indicate how many eggs are in reserve, it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of those eggs. And in fact, there's some evidence that shows that women with low AMH levels have the same chance of conceiving as women with normal AMH levels. So why do we have this test? Does it have any purpose? What can it tell us? Well, the AMH test is used in fertility clinics for women who are experiencing infertility and infertility, the definition of that is the inability to conceive a pregnancy or carry a baby to live birth after 12 months or more of unprotected sex. Mm. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about infertility. So the AMH test is used in fertility clinics for women who are experiencing infertility and are going through fertility treatment like IVF because having that indication of remaining eggs is helpful mm. for knowing how many eggs might be retrievable mm. for fertility treatment. So as part of fertility treatment, the test is informative. But for women who aren't seeking fertility treatment, the test is not helpful mm -hmm. and actually it could be harmful. Have you heard of this test, Janine? Yes, I'm listening with great interest because I know many, many people who have done this test. It is really important. Now, what about you, Squares? Have you heard of this test? Maybe you've seen it advertised already because this egg timer test or ovarian reserve test is being promoted a lot. Mm in podcasts, in social media, particularly in the US, but also in the UK and Australia. And I suspect it has or will reach beyond that soon enough. And it's not hard to get, Janine. Mm. You can just go online mm. yourself mm -hmm. now and order this test and then off you go to your pathology service to have your blood sample ready to be tested. Mm -hmm. So in Australia, this test is not subsidised. You 
as I said, you can order it yourself online or you can order it through a doctor and pay out of pocket. Mm. But because of this, we don't have good data on who's using the test, where they heard about it, and why they're using it. So these were the questions that my fabulous colleague, Rachel Thompson, and her colleagues wanted to answer in their recent study. Nice. Rachel Thompson (laughs) being the very same researcher who we just talked about in my study with Rachel. I feel like we need Rachel here to say... Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Thompson. (laughs) You may remember me from such studies as the one Janine just talked about. Hang on a minute. Janine, that means Rachel is the first person ever had to have two (gasps) papers covered in Sister Dr. Squared. Oh, yes, that's true. Write that down, Janine. Okay. That's that's a record. Do we have a specific sound effect for that? (laughs) Well, I think that puts Rachel in contention for a Sister Dr. Squared Award at the end of the year. Definitely. Does it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most studies covered on the podcast... Yeah. By going By from one to two, two. <laughs> Rachel has doubled the current record. <laughs> and she's done it in the one episode. She's had more papers covered than we have. <laughs> <laughs> she has. Oh, that's good. Well done, Rachel. Mm. Did you write that down, Janine? Yes. You need to write it down because if you don't write it down, it will be lost. Yes, this is true. Okay. That is your job. You are the production coordinator. <laughs> All right. Now, Rachel is a co-author on this study, so let's just settle down now and direct some equally well-deserved attention and praise to the lead author of the study, Mm. who is Dr. Tessa Kopp. Hi, Tessa. Hi, Tessa. Tessa and Rachel are based at the University of Sydney, along with the senior author on the study, Professor Kristen McCaffrey. And this study was published this year in 2023 in the journal Human Reproduction. FYI, the journal abbreviation for that one is Hume Reprod. <laughs> I don't know why we find okay. these things so funny, but we do. Oh, it's great. I love it. Um, so as I said, Tessa and colleagues wanted to know about awareness and use of the AMH test among women in Australia, as well as women's perspectives on the test. Mm. They surveyed 1,773 women aged 18 to 55 years, either online or by phone. It is. Mm. These women were recruited to the study through the Life in Australia Population Panel, which is a nationally representative database of Australian residents who were randomly recruited by phone to take part in research on an ongoing basis. So, Jenny, this is a pool of random Aussies. Mm-hmm. It's not a pool of women who already have some interest in fertility mm-hmm. issues, for instance. Yeah. Okay? So there's no there's no systematic bias there. And the this Australian population panel also captures offline populations as well because not everyone's on the internet. Well, that's true. That's true. So it's a very strong study in terms of the methods mm. and the recruitment. So let's talk about what Tessa and Rachel and colleagues found in their online and phone survey. First, what's women's general awareness and use of the AMH test? Well, of the 1,773 women surveyed, 13% had heard of the test. Mm -hmm. And the survey question also referred to it as the egg timer test and the ovarian reserve test in case that's, you know, the terms that women knew it by. Mm -hmm. 124, 7% had had an AMH test Mm -hmm which was half of those who had heard of the test. Use of the test was highest among women aged 35 to 39 years. And of those who had heard of the test, the most common source of information about it was fertility specialists, 29% of women, and friends and family, 23% Mm. of the women. And women who had heard about the AMH test but had not had the test had most commonly heard about it from friends and family or from the internet, social media, TV, radio, podcast. Hmm. So it's definitely out there Mm -hmm. in the ether, Janine. Yep. Women who had actually had the test had mostly heard about it from a fertility specialist or their general practitioner, GP, and this was how they accessed the test. So as they say in the paper, doctors seem to be the main drivers of use of the test, Mm -hmm. at least at the time the study was done, which was in 2022. So for the women who used the test, why did they do so? Well, just over half of these women said that they did the test as part of fertility treatment, Mm -hmm. which is good. This is the scenario where the test is most valid and informative. Mm -hmm. 
Another 11% wanted to know if a health condition had affected their fertility. Mm. So these are both medically indicated reasons for having the test. But 19% said that they did the test because they were thinking about getting pregnant soon and wanted to know their chances of conceiving, Mm. which is exactly what the test Mm -hmm. can't tell you, Mm. despite what the claims might be. Some of the other reasons for having the test were that women were curious about their fertility or that they were considering delaying childbearing and wanted to know if this was a good idea. Mm. Again, the test can't tell you that. So these latter findings are concerning because there's one third of these women who took the test thinking that it could give them information which it just can't. Mm -hmm. And there's clearly some faulty information and advertising that is getting through to women. Mm. And this is undermining women's ability to make informed decisions, not only about family planning, but about taking the test in the first place. True. Right? Because they think it's going to tell them something which it can't. Yes. And so certainly the claims that you might see from advertisers online and the like are not evidence-based. And the bottom line is really that when used outside of a fertility treatment setting, Um, among women who aren't experiencing infertility, this test is not what it claims to be. Mm. And how much does it cost? Do you know? Well, I saw one particular website. They were charging 299 Australian dollars. That's not cheap. For this test, that's not cheap at all. I, I only know about it because people I know have done it for the very reason of trying to get a sense of their fertility. Mm. I didn't know much about it at the point to sort of ask them about how they heard about it and why they thought that that would be an accurate indicator. Mm. But that's how I know about it. No, it certainly certainly hasn't hit me because I'm, as someone who is child-free by choice mm. and has no intentions to have children, mm. that marketing has not reached me. Well, this is what I was saying. I think this is about the circles you mix in. (laughs) It's right. That's right. So look, maybe some listeners out there are thinking, so what? It's just a blood test. Who does it hurt? Well, like mine and Rachel's paper talked about, people need accurate information Mm. to be able to make sound decisions about their family in future. The AMH test could give false reassurance to women who get a normal or high result and are considering delaying childbearing. Yes. I hadn't actually thought of it that way. On the flip side, it's true. And on the flip side, it could cause anxiety and despair Mm. among women who get a low result and conclude from that that they'll never have children. Mm. Or they might decide to immediately get pregnant even though they're not ready Mm. out of fear that if they delay it any longer, they'll miss their chance. Mm -mm -mm. So it can cause harm. At least if women are accessing the tests through their doctor, they might get some reliable information Mm. and Mm counselling about what the test can and can't do. But this direct-to-consumer test that I talked about where you can just order it online Mm. and off you go, that doesn't allow for this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's one of the limitations of this current study is that the researchers weren't able to ask women what type of counselling they received before doing Mm. the test. So we don't know Mm. what information they had. Certainly at the moment in the USA, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists strongly discourages using this test for women who are not seeking fertility treatment. That's good that that's out there. Mm. But I'm not sure how many people are going and looking there. No. They're just doing a basic Google search and this is going to come up, isn't it? It is. That's right. Mm. And there's even some evidence that Um, some GPs fail to recognise Mm. that the AMH test cannot assess Mm -hmm. egg quality Mm -hmm. and the chances of conceiving. So that misinformation is coming from multiple sources. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes maybe even health professionals. Yeah. So education for the public and also health professionals is really important. Totally. So, Alina, in this paper, is there any suggestion of how we can get an accurate indication of fertility? Well, uh, Tessa wrote an article in the Conversation AU that talks about this. And when it comes to women's fertility, no, Mm. there is no single, you know, 100% reliable way to test a woman's fertility. Mm. We know that fertility is related to age, Mm -hmm. as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. So age is is the strongest predictor Mm -hmm. we have. But really, as Tessa talks about in her article, the only way to know your fertility is by trying to get pregnant when you are ready. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the most valid way. So it's certainly not this egg timer test. Mm. Wow. Well, I've certainly learned a lot hearing about that paper 
from Tessa and Rachel. So thank you for sharing that one. And hopefully Squares listening have learned a lot too. And we'd really like to ask you to just share the episode, tell people about it, because we do want to try and raise the information and awareness building around this topic. Absolutely, because it's so important, Mm. you know, having babies. it's, It's a big deal. As I said at the start, it's something that many people aspire to and we really need good information to help along the way. But, as you know, it's not just all about information and I think this is a really important point for mine and Rachel's paper that increasing individuals' knowledge of these issues is just one piece of a mm. very complex puzzle. It's not all about individuals having better knowledge. It's about having the support. It's about policies that actually support people to achieve their reproductive aspirations and to have Mm. children at those younger ages because, as I said, it's really difficult. Mm. All right, Janine, let's have a bit of fun now. So what do we got? What are we doing? I'm going with Old Faithful in a Square today. Oh, good. I want to talk about the TV show Alone Australia, which has been... Oh, you're obsessed. (laughs) Me and many others are obsessed. This has been on SBS Mm -hmm. in Australia. This is a series that's been done in many countries, but this year is the first time it's been done in Australia. For anyone that's not familiar with this... 10 Australians were dropped into the remote Tasmanian wilderness with a very small amount of stuff and have to survive. And the one that survives the longest is going to get a lot of prize money. It was absolutely fascinating and gripping from start to finish for me. I particularly loved seeing many of our First Nations people on the show and just hearing about their deep connection to country, just hearing them talk about that, seeing that we have so much to learn from our First Nations people and... I really now want to focus in on one of the contestants. His name was Michael. He's a veterinarian. And I just want to point out that he obviously must not have done any invertebrate biology in his vet course because he found some millipedes one day and he called them bugs. Oh, no. Now, (laughs) bugs are one order of insects. They are. Look, you need to remind Squares that you did your PhD on millipedes, okay? I'm going this to talk where, about this. This is where the passion comes from. This is a general issue. Calling all invertebrates bugs is a really big bug bear of many people uh, <laughs> with my training. Puns, yay! yay! Oh, can you do the pun alert? All right. Bugs are one order of insects. The true bugs are the hemiptera. It includes stink bugs, cicadas, aphids, assassin bugs, Go and Google assassin bugs. Watch how rad they are. They have a mouth part like mm-hmm. a switchblade. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Back to the millipedes. So he found some millipedes and he attempted to eat them, Alina. Look, even I know that that's, that's, that's ill-advised. <laughs> this is, I thought, I'm going to raise this with you and see what your response is because, <laughs> I mean, cyanide okay, alert. <laughs> look, he was literally starving. I get it. But. Do not eat millipedes. I was just screaming at the screen. No, 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 no. They are toxic. All millipedes are toxic to varying degrees because they have evolved to have various defensive chemicals to prevent being eaten and being attacked. Um, Many release quinones. These taste foul. They'll stain your hands, irritate your eyes. Like They'll just taste bloody awful. And I think anyone who tried to eat a millipede that is producing quinones would probably spit it out. This is exactly what Michael does. He puts it in and spits it straight out. I think if you did, <laughs> I think if you did swallow it, you would probably get a stomachache. Right. But let me tell you about the order of millipedes, the polydesmata. This is the largest order of millipedes. The millipede species that I worked on belongs in this order. And often when I'd be sitting in the lab all alone doing my little mating experiments, I would smell <laughs> this strong waft of almonds. Mm. And I think, what's that? What's that smell that they're they're emitting? And so I went off and did some investigation and I came to learn that they were releasing hydrogen cyanide, Alina. Yes, cyanide (laughs) alert. Mm -hmm. This is also what happens when you happen to be the first person working on a new group of animals. Right. (laughs) Which was me. Mm -hmm. In case anyone doesn't know, hydrogen cyanide is extremely toxic and deadly. In large enough doses, it will stop cellular respiration. So this is the thing that your mitochondria do to keep every cell of your body alive, generating energy. You know, it keeps you alive and stuff. Mm. So obviously the millipedes I was working on were not emitting enough for that to happen or I wouldn't be here talking to you now. So yeah, I just would like to 
Is this an inner square or like an inner? It is an inner square. Classic inner square. This is classic inner square. It's classic inner square, but you're also having a vent. (laughs) I'm also doing a PSA. Yes. Because thank goodness Michael didn't attempt to eat a polydesmid millipede. Um, What he had tried to eat was a Portuguese millipede. This is an introduced species found in many parts of Australia. It's a huge problem in Perth where I lived for many years. So anyone listening in from WA and Perth will be all too familiar with this. This is not from the polydesmid group. It's from the order Julida. They released the quinones that I mentioned before. But so just look, I'm just going to end on this PSA. Please don't eat millipedes. Please don't handle millipedes if you don't know what you're dealing with. Don't disturb them. Don't kill them. Just leave them alone. They're a really essential part of ecosystems being detritivores. They're really rad. Just leave them be. That's right. And if you don't want to upset Janine (laughs) and other invertebrate biologists, (laughs) don't call them bugs. (laughs) You you may call true bugs bugs and that's it. That is correct. I'm finished. Yes, here we are. What can we learn from David Bowie? This is your segment, Janine, but I'm getting involved. No, it's because our segment. It's all squares segment. You introduced it and I wasn't going to participate. It's for everyone. But now I am because there's something we can all learn about David Bowie's eyes. Oh, I was going to do this at one point. <laughs> well, you're too Go late. Yep. Beat you to the post. As you know, Janine, he had really striking, kind of spooky eyes. They were so cool. Like his overall persona in music, really. They were kind of unearthly. and But they were his eyes, right? Mm. He wasn't wearing contacts mm. or anything like that to build that alien persona. They were his eyes. Mm. So, Janine, have you heard of a condition called heterochromia. Yes. I was just in my head trying to remember what it was and that's what came up. Yes. So this is a rare condition in humans where each iris is a different colour. So some people might have one blue and one brown eye, for example. And I think Shane Warne had this. Oh. Warney. Oh, I didn't know that. I think so. I'm not sure. Oh, you do love Rest Warnie. in peace, mate. You'd know. I love Warney. So if you... Did think that David Bowie had heterochromia? You would be wrong. Really? Yes, I think for a long I time. That is what he had. Many people thought he had heterochromia. Yes, I think this this is a misconception. Now, Janine, image search David Bowie's eyes. Okay, doing it. Okay, do it. And if you look really closely, it's not that the eyes are a different color. Mm-hmm. It's that his left pupil was much larger than his right. Oh, hang on. So this unequal size in a person's pupils is called anisocoria. And this <gasps> oh is the condition goodness, that right. David Bowie had. <gasps> I know. Cheesy just looks awesome. Well, I just love him so much. In his case, his left eye was actually permanently dilated. Yeah, I'm looking okay, right so now. So the pupil, yeah, the black part of the eye that expands in low light and shrinks in bright light, his pupil was permanently wow. dilated. So his left it's, eye looked darker. Yeah, because it's it, just it looks, because that's right. You can't see as much of the coloured iris, iris because the pupil is the was same so colour. Wow. It is. And this is also what gives that left eye that really alien, eerie, freaking cool look, right? Totally. What I think is kind of funny about this is in photos, Mm -hmm. because his pupil is so big, he would get like really mega red eyes. And you can see, you can find some of those as well. Yeah, I've just got one here. I just Googled David Bowie's eyes and I'm image searching that. Do that. There's some if you if you come across like artistic impressions, they might have different coloured eyes, but I think they, that speaks they to the do. misconception. They do. Actually look at photos, you will see mm. that it's the pupil. So so what happened, Janine? Do you want to know how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, like is this, this a genetic condition? What is this? It was love, Janine. What? He got into a fight over a girl. <gasps> His mate punched him in the eye no and it scratched the eyeball. Oh my goodness. Paralyzed the muscles that contract the iris. What? It's true. Wow. And he came to be quite grateful to his mate mm. for this, clock him in the face because 
David Bowie liked that it gave him that edge mm. and that it contributed to his mystique because uh-huh. it really does. Well, that's definitely looking at the glass yeah. half full, isn't it? We can learn that's so much right. from this person. Well, you can read more. There's an article in The Conversation by Kevin Hunt that talks all about this. Oh, yeah, share that. And David Bowie did not have heterochromia. He had anisocoria brought on by love and fisticuffs. Mm. So this this happens because of physical injury? In his case, yes. that is what happened. Okay. Yes. Wow. I love this segment. I'm learning so much. (laughs) Mm. Thank you so much, Adrian Diary, for composing that amazing David Bowie-inspired theme music. Okay, Janine, shall we wrap things up? Yes. Thank you, everyone, for listening in as always. You can head along to our show notes page on our website to get details of all of the studies we've discussed, including Alina and Rachel's study. And follow us on socials. If you like listening, you might like to buy us a coffee via our Ko-fi page. All the links to that are on our website and on our socials. Follow us on socials. We've got so many more listeners than we do have connections Followers, in our yeah. socials. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there, but come and find us. <laughs> and please, please, everyone in Mexico, connect with us and tell us what's going on there. We need to know. Yes, yes. we want to know who you know. are. Yes. We will, We promise we will respond. If one of you gets in touch, mm. we will respond. We will personally respond. If we don't get many people contacting us. Don't worry. <laughs> we, we have time. <laughs> what's Spanish for goodbye? Adios. Adios. Adios.